Welcome to Deep Breath In, the primary care podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, that tackles the everyday challenges of being a GP. It's said that musculoskeletal problems form 20% of presentations to general practice, but there have been a lot of changes in recent years that have made consultations a bit harder than they used to be and might have left some GPs feeling a bit de-skilled. Patients are increasingly encouraged to self-refer to physiotherapy-led community services, and what we're emphasising now when it comes to management has also shifted. This is highlighted in the recent draft NICE guidelines for osteoarthritis, which seem to be accelerating the move away from pharmacological intervention to a much greater emphasis on self-management. But what's driving those changes, and what exactly does that mean we should cover in a consultation? In this episode, we're hearing from Imran Sajid, GP and Northwest London CCG musculoskeletal clinical lead, to find out how he approaches osteoarthritis and chronic pain and to get his top tips in a consultation. I'm Navjoit Lada, a GP in London and a clinical editor for the BMJ, and today I'm joined, as ever, by Tom Nolan and Jennifer Razanathan. Hi, Navjoit. Uh, yeah, I'm Tom Nolan. I'm a clinical editor at the BMJ, also uh, currently a locum GP. Hi, Navjoit. I'm Jenny Rasanathan, a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. Well, welcome, both of you. And um, as I said, this week we're talking about musculoskeletal pain, osteoarthritis, um, all of that stuff, which, you know, supposedly is like 20% of what we see in medicine. So hopefully something that is really clinically common for all of us. Um my impetus for wanting us to focus on this for this week was from when the new draft NICE guidance was published in the UK around springtime. Um, and there was a lot of attention to it because it was focusing much more on non-pharmacological management, you know, much more about exercise. There are a lot of medication options that were taken out um, from from the guidance with um, only really paracetamol left as an option. And it just made me wonder as GPs, you know, this is something that we see so often, What what's sort of left in our toolkit now really to manage um, these patients who often come and see us and, you know, really struggling with pain, uh, with limited function and that sort of thing. So I thought this would be a good good thing for us to discuss. And I don't know in your experience how you tend to approach, particularly osteoarthritis, I think, which is what the NICE guidance is about. Um, I don't know, Tom, How what do you feel like it's a easy consultation for you or yeah. challenging? Yeah, definitely, definitely challenging. Um, I love the, the, you know, the 20% thing. Have, have you noticed how Pretty much everything is like twenty percent of our. Yeah, GP I think dermatology is twenty percent as well, isn't it? So that's like already forty percent that's dermatology and musculoskeletal. Yeah, but um, so I'm always, I always love to, to pour my cynical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're right to be sceptical. Uh, to be sceptical. Anyway, but no, it is common. Uh, interesting, like like is it as common now? Now that we've got first contact physios, and a lot of people go directly to physios or other other healthcare professionals to see uh to see people um and I wonder how much I get de-skilled by <laughs> the comfort of being able to say oh right that's that's very <laughs> I won't give you that my my consultation style but um <laughs> you can you can come and see a, a you know a physiotherapist tomorrow and have a have a, a more detailed assessment etc so I, I I wonder about that I worry about that but um I also um, I also quite like it. I like all this stuff that I think we're going to hear about today, which is trying to think about osteoarthritis differently from that, you know, wear and I won't try to give it too much away, but wear and tear and, you know, need to see the x-rays and all that. So I'm, I'm looking forward to talking more about that today. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and I think, I think what we'll hear coming up is perhaps challenging some of our for me anyway, kind of quite outdate, outdated approach to um, uh, assessment and management of people who uh, come in with... Do you still get an x-ray for everyone after? Are you um, are you that person getting back x-rays? I, <laughs> I don't think I'm that person, but I think I don't... I probably don't... Uh, I definitely think about imaging probably more than I should be, and I'm definitely... I think my 
the sort of options that I present to patients probably are a bit narrower than um, they should be, which, you know, we'll, we'll hear more about coming up. But before we do that, Jenny, I mean, how do you tend to approach osteoarthritis or, or what's your experience? I think pretty similar to Tom's, to be honest. I mean, I find these consultations personally difficult because I think the ability to refer to physio and to have a kind of um, allied health care provider pretty accessible has resulted in some de-skilling on my part, but also I just feel helpless in terms of strategies and treatments that I can provide. I often end up with a feeling that people come in and they have pain and the remedies they've tried, which are often within the scope of the guideline, uh, aren't working. And then I feel like there's nothing else to do. Um, And so particularly in New York, it was the process of getting them in to see a physio, hoping that the waiting time wouldn't be too long and hoping that they would be able to help. And in New Zealand, it was more an issue of um, you've gone to see physio and it hasn't helped and now what? Isn't that so interesting that like we're just sort of pinning all of our hopes on physiotherapy and um, it seems like what else can we do? But that, that's something we're definitely going to talk about with um, our guest this week, Imran Sajid, who is a GP with um, an interest and expertise in musculoskeletal medicine and, and pain management. Um, I did my GP training with Imran, which is how I know him. And he's definitely um, someone who's really taken a deep dive into a lot of these issues. So thinking about uh, sort of broadening the kinds of management that we think about, and also about how we approach taking a history as well and how we approach talking about pain. Um, And I think I certainly found our conversation really informative and there were lots that I took away um, to, that I think, you know, is and will change my practice. So hopefully there'll be a lot um, for us to um, sink our teeth into. So why don't we have a listen to the first half of our interview with Imran? And that's coming up after a word from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries coroner inquests, criminal investigations, and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks, and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a GP. Um, I spend about a, a third of my week in clinical practice. I love all general practice, but I've got a particular interest in kind of MSK. So I started off more around um, sports and exercise medicine and general MSK, but concurrently I've done a lot of psychiatry and psychology training and accreditation. So that kind of naturally led me into pain medicine. Um, I'm also a qualified personal trainer. And then more recently, um, I'm doing my complete my case accreditation as an MSK sonographer. So lots of interest in how we clinically manage MSK pain. So Imran, with your background and interests, you are steeped in thinking about musculoskeletal conditions and osteoarthritis and pain and how we can get better at managing those things in primary care and beyond. Um, I just wanted to start by asking you, what are the, some of the concepts that guide your approach to management of a patient presenting with um, the more, dare I say, straightforward musculoskeletal condition, say something like an uncomplicated osteoarthritis? 
I mean, I guess I, I always start with it's, it's it, I think it's useful for clinicians to have a good understanding of what these, these conditions are. I know that certainly in my journey, one of the, the kind of light bulb moments was when I started to realize um, that there's a lot more going on in a lot of MSK conditions than just some clear structural mm-hmm. biomedical cause of someone's symptoms. Um, I think if, if the clinicians in the system start to understand that, then we can get better at really supporting patients. Um, there's a really, I think there's a really key principle that I think probably, if, particularly if you're kind of coming from an evidence-based perspective, that I think would be sobering and useful for, for most clinicians to know that anything that we tend to do when it comes to MSK pain, um, when people get better, um, that's largely not the treatment that we did. Um, so a lot of the time when patients come back and say, oh yes, this thing that we did really worked, a large part mm-hmm. of that is actually probably natural history of the condition or regression to the mean and maybe a small part of contextual effects. So I think it's important to recognize that as a clinician that there's lots of things that we can do. There aren't that many magic silver bullets that are just suddenly going to fix everything. Um, everything that we do has a different kind of risk or opportunity cost associated with it. Um, and I think we have to be particularly careful within MSK because sometimes you can do something or the patient might do something. And just because of all the biases we have, we think that that treatment we did helped them. But then we get this belief reinforcement that we think that injection or that medication helped. And that's not always a bad thing. But I think when you've got um, people really relying on treatments or interventions, which may be reduce their their ability to self-manage that make them more reliant on other people yeah. sometimes i think we have to be a bit careful about that um that we might be removing people's locus of control to be able to help themselves and, and make people maybe excessively reliant on others for things that they probably can manage themselves and that fits in with a lot of the discussion about the draft nice guidelines for osteoarthritis that recently came out which has more of a focus on self-management i mean the the, the, the nice guidelines came up came up recently and i think um, a lot of it isn't necessarily new. There, there were, I think, a few bits of it which raised a couple of eyebrows in terms of can primary care deliver and, you know, do all these things practically. Again, I think with osteoarthritis, uh, again, I think it's useful for the clinicians to understand, you know, what, what is arthritis? Um, I think a lot of people think of arthritis in very different ways. I mean, you know, there's a very basic kind of advice there. How you diagnose it, you know, people who are over age 45, activity-related pain, no prolonged morning stiffness. Um, you don't necessarily need imaging. As much as it's intuitive, a lot of people with most MSK conditions think that they need some imaging. Um, we know that, you know, it depends on the study you look at, but whether it's x-rays or MRIs, above the age of 40, you know, maybe 40, maybe even some studies, half of people above the age of 40 will have some arthritis changes on their knee joint. Most of those people have no symptoms. So uh, like most things in MSK, the correlation between structural changes and actually people's symptoms is really poor. Um, and so uh, it's it's useful to try and provide that education to patients, try and help people understand what arthritis is. So you mentioned that the explanation is an important part of setting expectations and future trajectory, if you like. How do you explain what osteoarthritis is? Uh, annoyingly, we often use the word wear and tear, you, you know, we all do it. It's easy. People can kind of understand it. If you're in a, in, a, in a, you haven't got much time in consultation, it's very easy to kind of say that and people kind of get what you're saying. It's probably not really accurate. We we kind of ha- having a better understanding of, our, of what OA is. It is probably some level of an inflammatory condition, maybe not as inflammatory as kind of uh, historical kind of rheumatology, kind of rheumatoid arthritis, things like that. But there's some level of inflammation going on. Um, if you're going to use any way to describe it, I tend to try and tell patients it's, it's a wear and repair process. The you know, joints are metabolically active. Um, they are responding to the pressures and loads that we are putting on them. Um, a lot of the changes that we see on x-rays, we're seeing a repair mm-hmm. process. So when people have osteophytes, cortical irregularities, that's remodeling. That's a healthy, healthy part of repair. It's just sometimes that repair process kind of goes into overdrive as such and it can cause debilitating symptoms. Um, I know one of the things that the NICE guidelines suggest is that you don't necessarily routinely need to do x-rays, which I think is a challenging conversation. We don't always have time to explain to patients why it doesn't necessarily change management. But we we do often see that the correlation um, between what you see on an x-ray and people's pain isn't particularly strong. Um, And and I think we have to be careful about the verbiage that we use when we see people's x-rays or we describe their condition to them. Because if we start saying things like, you know, you've got a degenerative joint, you've got bone on bone. Um, this can have quite endearing effects on people. So it can affect their perception, their condition. It can affect people's perception on what type of treatments may or may not work. It might 
ramp up their avoidance behaviors. People might think, especially if you use the word degenerative, people might think, well, it's just going to keep getting worse and more activity might, you know, pro progress it further. I mean, it's even possible that by changing people's perception of their condition, you might even affect their pain signaling and actually increase their pain directly. So we have to be careful, I think, about what we understand of arthritis um, and how we explain it to people. Um, it's really interesting to hear you talk about yeah. the way, you know, you approach uh, consultation, you know, or approach these ideas about what is osteoarthritis and, and actually how much of what we do in an average um, MSK consultation, um, it certainly in terms of interventions actually makes a difference. I think that is quite sobering. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I'd really recommend that there's a guy called Professor Tony Dickinson and um, years, I think I'd been a GP for one or two years and I stumbled upon one of his lectures um, and he's just incredibly articulate explaining this wealth of, of neuroscience in terms of how the, the neuroemotional circuitry, which really ramps up and drives our pain experience. Um, and it, it's just not straightforward at all. So, you know, these these nociceptive neurons in our system, they kind of feed into this complex system of signal amplification and then inhibitory downregulation. And then there's this interplay between our emotional limbic system and our higher cortical regions. And your, your, your body generates this value judgment of what these signals mean. And that's what pain is. It's just this value judgment around a perception of threat. And it's really inaccurate, you know, especially when it comes to kind of persistent pain. You can have, you can have horrendous life-threatening tissue injury and have no pain, you know, cancer, for example. Or you can have a horrendous pain from absolutely minimal tissue injury. Um, and there's all these changes that we increasingly understand in terms of changes that happen in the peripheral nervous system, the central nervous system, and that can be very largely influenced by lots of things in our lifestyle um, and things that we can potentially influence as a GP. It's just, it's not easy to necessarily get that across. And there's all this, there's all this debate about how useful it is to actually provide that detailed uh, yeah. pain neuroscience education to patients. But I think it does help as a clinician to broadly recognize. And I think, like I said, most clinicians kind of recognize this. They might not recognize just how significant it is, but particularly with persistent pain, you've got these physiological structural causes, which might be, you know, nociceptive tissue drivers like joint changes or deconditioning. There are neuro neurological dysfunctions, which might cause people to have kind of hyperalgesia or allodynia. So that's things like, you know, radiculopathies or neuropathies. And then you can get this so-called kind of nociplastic or, or central sensitization changes, which I was just talking about, where sing pain signals are just are, are transmitted um, at much lower thresholds than they should be, and, and the nervous system can get really sensitized. And, and all those things drive pain, but there's all these personal factors which drive pain, and they really drive the disability around the pain. So that's people's mood, their expectations, their belief, their perceptions, their self-efficacy. A lot of these things drive kind of avoidance behaviors where people start avoiding things. And we can all do that if something starts hurting, we just start avoiding doing things. Um, and it's really interesting that when you're taking a consultation, of all the things that you might look for in, in the history and examination, or even, even imaging, for a lot of the high volume stuff that we see, whether it's back pain, shoulder pain, probably even for knee pain, one of the most prognostic things that you can find out is what people's perceptions, what do they think is going on? What do they think is going to happen? What do they think about movement? Um, how long do they think this is going to take to recover? Those things are probably more impactful than everything else that we ask for. And like you say, we we hang on to a lot of the the kind of the red flags because, you know, obviously there are, there are uh, medical legal, legal reasons that we need to do that. But perhaps, you know, back pain, for example, I think the average practicing GP will see one true quarter quina in an entire practicing lifetime, right? But yet we ask about those symptoms in every single consultation. And maybe we don't have enough time to actually ask people, you know, their mood. What do they think this pain represents? What do they think is going to happen? What are their thoughts around movement? Um, what are the environmental factors around their employment, their workload, their job satisfaction, their stress? Is anything else legal going on in the background? Treat the pain. My general um, view is if you're just trying to treat the pain using just a medical model, mm -hmm. it'll, it'll work, but to a very limited degree. Um, so when you're taking that history, you, you know, you need to have a really good understanding of the whole pain journey that person's been on. You know, what initially triggered that pain? What movement patterns or activities bring it on? What things have they found helps, you know, positions or medications? What is that pain stopping them actually doing? What would they like to get back to? I often say to people, if, if you were not in pain tomorrow, what would you be doing more of? Because that might help mm -hmm. tailor some of the goals you might try and figure out how they can slowly get back to. And always asking them, you know, what do they think might be going and, on? And is, is this happening over multiple consultations? Or I know, yeah. And this? and this is a tricky thing. I think, yes, I think you're right that 
you can't often do all of this in a single consultation, particularly if they're coming with, with lots of problems. And it may be a case that you do a little bit of understanding in one consultation, and then you have to do, you know, you have to have a, a, a bit of a framework where you're going to do little bits. So there we go. That's the first half of our interview with Imran. And I think lots to kind of chew on there. Um, You know, we were in our initial conversation, we were talking about how, you know, we immediately think of physiotherapy and what that conversation made me realise is actually I'm probably really shortchanging the patient and not talking to them enough about their pain or um, having enough of a conversation about what osteoarthritis is and definitely not mentioning wear or tear. <laughs> I don't know. What did you guys think? Uh, Jenny? Oh, for sure. Um, you know, his one of his initial points that if, you know, the interventions we're prescribing decrease the patient's own self-management or feeling of self-efficacy, then, and we're removing that locus of control from them, then we are doing a disservice. And I, I thought that was really interesting. And that's not to decrease the value of physio. I mean, I I think a lot of us turn to it because there is evidence for it in many conditions, but um, that piece about kind of self-efficacy and self-management and their own perceptions, I thought was really important, Um, especially because their perception of what this is, what it's coming from, and what is going to help it, at least thinking of a couple examples of people I know, including my... uh, my curmudgeon of a father will often (laughs) dictate what they're willing to do and how much they're willing to engage in any kind of um, self-management or treatment efficacy. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? I I mean, I find that all really compelling, the kind of patient benefit and the sort of benefit to management from approaching a consultation in that way. And I must say the other thing I was struck by is actually it gives – the GP, um, they're sort of a locus of control as well. If we're feeling that, you know, we're, um, oh, we, you know, we, we, this is all about access to physio or whatever. Actually, here's something sort of practical and tangible that we can do. Um, what were your thoughts, Tom? Um, yeah, well, I'm just glad to hear like the phrase locus of control again, because um, I can tell you both like it because you both repeated it. <laughs> I, I remember when I first It's very heard... GP theory yeah. kind yeah, yeah, of yeah. type yeah. of uh, expression, isn't it? A psychiatrist. When I first heard of it, a psychiatrist wrote to me and saying that she felt my patient had an external locus of control, and I was like, "What is she trying to say?" And I think she was saying, "Stop trying to fix all their problems." And uh, <laughs> so, very um, wise. Yes, yes. I thought that you know the wear and tear bit. I think I've started saying wear and repair, but I, I liked the additional bit of describe, or maybe not these words, but that the joint is metabolically active because I think you do have this vision of a joint being this kind of, you know, arid landscape where nothing happens. It's like, um, Mm. so I I like that. Maybe that will help to make that wear and repair idea stick a bit more. Because I I sometimes feel it doesn't really go, I don't know. I think I need to improve my delivery. I I agree with you. I I also thought it was a useful kind of reminder to um, kind of really be clear on the poor correlation between the symptoms and the x-ray findings. And that's a really useful piece of information to be able to say, you know, 40% or whatever percent of people um, at this age will have some abnormal x-ray findings. Um, And to point out, you know, that just because you have this doesn't mean this is where your pain is coming from. Because I think there's a real temptation, even perhaps on our part, to say, look, an osteophyte, that that explains it. Aha, degenerative change. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I was thinking about that that term because that's quite a hard place to start a follow-up consultation is, you know, because I like to, to be very, um, I like to give the, the as much of the report as I can in the wording and then try to sort of decode the wording. But if you're starting with the term degenerative change, which seems to be on every x-ray, like you say, Jenny, it's, it's quite a hard, it's like an uphill battle. I wonder if the radiologists could do us a favour by coming up with a better term. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is interesting to kind of reflect on how much of a difference that language might make and what actually is being absorbed and what messages that's sending to patients. I mean, the point about whether radiologists could think about their reporting language, I mean, one of the things is should be even be even be requesting a lot of that imaging in the first place um, to even have had that report. Um, I, just coming back to the point about wear and tear, I think it does still sneak into my, it's just so like in my parlance, although I have tried to switch. I think I've tried to switch. I read an editorial, a BMJ editorial earlier this year um, where where they used flare and repair and thinking of, um, you know, again, sort of picking up on what Imran was saying about, you know, perhaps this is, there, there is a level of sort of inflammatory process going yeah. on. Does it um, have to flare and with, repair. with where though? I mean, I you can only you have words go... that rhyme. Yeah. You can't, that, that's quite limiting, but yeah, it, that they're the only words that are allowed. But I'm just going to read a bit of this editorial um, uh, out to you that says um, this, the conclusions of this study that the paper was commenting on should mark the end of discussions about wear and tear with patients or anyone else. The wear and tear model was negatively framed, is inconsistent with evidence and advice on physical activity and is woefully inaccurate reinforcing expectations of inevitable decline and reduced quality of life. So just to reiterate that message, and I guess if there's one thing perhaps that we could all come away from this episode with, it's let's stop saying wear, wear and tear. Mm. Did you think a little bit of what Imran was saying and kind of drawing on Tony Dickinson? Like if I was thinking and as I was listening, um, if I tried to explain this to a patient you know, about perception and how different nerves maybe are getting it wrong and um, that they're kind of overreacting or being inappropriately triggered or, um, you know, if I was worried that it would sound to a patient like I was saying this was in their head or that not that that they were kind of making it up in a way or that it wasn't real or legitimate, but maybe the future of MSK is neuromodulation. Yeah, well, there's a great book um, called Pain is Really Strange, um, which is a, it's like a sort of graphic novel type thing um, that's written for the public. And it explains pain in terms of uh, the sort of neural pathways and, and all that stuff. <laughs> I need to read it again to remind myself of what it all is. But yeah, we had one of those at the practice and somebody didn't bring it back, but uh I thought that was a good one. That'd be my tip for um, if you if you want. To. But I mean, that sounds like a phrase that you know I, I could see myself using, like the start of an explanation. Well, well, you know, pain is really strange. Blah blah blah. Like you know, and on from there. And, and I think it's true. Pain. We. I mean, certainly for me, I feel like there's a lot I don't understand about pain. You know, we think a lot of it is you know, one plus one equals two, and it it just isn't. It just you know, there's there's so much, um, so many inputs that I think we don't understand. Um, and I think I think there there is value in sort of sharing that sort of with patients um, that you know there could be all sorts of things. I, um, I don't know if it's helpful or not helpful, but I think um, certainly this idea that you know oh I have pain, I'm going to take a painkiller. You know we know that that's that's not how it works. So I, I guess most patients know that too. Mm-hmm. Um, well. So we've talked a lot about the sort of the kind of, I guess, history taking approach to a consultation, explanations. Um, one of the things I was really keen to discuss with Imran was um, also about kind of management options, really. And particularly if there is going to be this, um, uh, if we do want to move towards more of a focus on self-management um, and and moving away from medications and a kind of medical model what are some of the things that we can offer so um that's what i spoke to imran about in the second part of the interview so why don't we take a listen When we talked earlier, you were telling me about the neuroscience and psychology, which is an important part of um, a patient experience and in presentations of osteoarthritis and pain. Um, Can we talk a little bit more about that and how we might better cover those issues in a consultation? And the problem is we have this very linear approach where, and we're really time pressured. So, you know, they, they come and it's like, okay, well, 
I'll prescribe something because that's the easiest and quickest thing to do. Um, and you know, there's all sorts of problems in, in terms of, I think, how we prescribe drugs and pain. And often the effect is much lower than we might hope it to be. And then they come back and then, okay, well, let's refer to physiotherapy. But there's huge wait times for physiotherapy at the moment, which is a big problem. Um, another big problem with physiotherapy is people have completely different expectations of what they think physiotherapy might be. Um, clinicians, physiotherapists, and patients, they all think it might be something different from exercise to massage. So it can be kind of useful to understand what do you think physiotherapy is, is and what's it going to do for you? Um, I mean, you know, people come back because physiotherapy didn't work because either they didn't get many sessions or it wasn't what they expected it to be or it just it was quite hard to do a lot of people you know it's not easy physiotherapy is behavior change it's not really easy to do so then we might send them for imaging and like i said imaging the diagnostic or at least therapeutic yield how often mm. will imaging change your management it's pretty rare it's often just a holding thing that mm -hmm. we're doing just because action bias want to do something then we might try an injection um, that doesn't work so we might think okay well now i'm going to refer you for a procedural intervention or to secondary care um, and it's kind of, I think we need to move away from that linear approach. This is fair, mm -hmm. let's go on to this. It's not a ladder that you're just going up. Um, it's more of just, there's a whole buffet of options that you can think about in terms of managing someone. Um, and there's, there's a lot we can do in terms of just whole person management in primary care, which does, the research yeah. shows, it tends to be effective as anything else. And is that is that the emphasis in the new the draft nice guidance for osteoarthritis? I should say is that it does seem to be trying to step more towards that kind of um, enabling self management in patients, maybe in, uh, moving away from more of the drug and imaging that we we tend to go for. Can you talk, take us through what some of that buffet of options is? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is you know uh, it's always. Guideline committees always have this, you know, insurmountable yeah. challenge to try and come up with one size fits all um, approaches. And, you know, we know there's all these inherent limitations around guidelines. Um, but, you know, clearly, NICE is doing what, what many institutes around the world are, have been trying to do is try and course correct um, from just a biomedical approach and make us think a bit more about um, other psychosocial interventions and, and, and also try and get us moving towards an idea, particularly with persistent MSK pains, often it's about living with the pain rather than completely being able to cure it. Um, and two of the things that the, the NICE guidelines particularly focused on was this idea around weight loss and then also exercise and movement. And I think these are some of the areas that maybe kind of raised a few eyebrows in terms of the, the pressure that we are under in primary care. How can we pragmatically and practically do that? Um, so it might be useful just, I can share some of my tips and thoughts on that yes please um, that'd be great so i mean if if we start with weight loss and, and this is i think one of the ones that a lot of people kind of thought oh this is quite challenging there is some nuance to this that we know there's lots of observational data higher bmi does seem to increase people's risk of developing knee arthritis and also perhaps doing worse with it um, going from that point of it's a risk factor then treating weight loss in order to actually treat pain is a little bit more nuanced um, we know that most people, and I'm not an expert in terms of weight loss, but I, I, this is just my, my understanding of, of the evidence, particularly when it comes to MSK. We know that most people who try and lose weight themselves can usually lose about 2% in the short term. The benefit that you're going to achieve from conservative weight loss programs is, is relatively small. We know that if you are able to get more to that 5-10%, um, which not necessarily everyone can do, the effect size of that is around 0.3, which is it's quite small. You're talking about a, a five to 10 point reduction in pain on a 100 point scale. So that's mm. just about the minimal clinical import difference that's, that's noticeable that patients might be able to notice. It's not even clear if that's necessarily just the weight loss. It might also be metabolic changes. It might be that as people lose weight, they become more physically active. Um, so it's definitely something to pursue. Yeah, yeah. and it, I mean, from what you're saying, it sounds like they would need to lose a proportion of weight that is you know from studies is quite challenging yeah. to not only lose but then also sustain my general perspective is um yes it's something to bring up but i tend to focus a bit more on getting people moving for for various reasons which i'll talk about and and just figuring out what what's a person's goals because people with persistent joint pains or or any kind of persistent msk pain there's lots of you know they there can often be a loss of identity poor sleep loss of fitness loss of social environment impact on their work study i try and figure out Look, where, how are all these aspects of your life going and, and what's, what are the goals that you want to get back? Should we talk about movement yeah. then as well? Because that seems to be like an avenue where potentially there is more that we can uh, be doing. Absolutely. And, you know, I kind of think 
again, again, I scrutinize everything in equal measure. So exercise, if you actually look at the actual average effect size of exercise, it, it, it's not a panacea. It's just, um, uh, it's, there's so many reasons that we might encourage exercise more than other. If we say that we've got all these interventions, um, there's a reason that we might gravitate towards exercise. And that's because, um, you know, it's, it's very attractive that it's very safe. You know, fine, you've got a risk of maybe some injuries, but if people are doing exercise sensibly, you can manage that. Um, there's all these kind of pliotropic other benefits of exercise in terms of people's well-being, reduced disability, improving their self-efficacy, cardiovascular benefits, blood pressure, changing fat composition. There's so many reasons why it makes sense to encourage exercise. And it's, it's attractive because it's achievable. Almost everyone with the right support can get into a bit of exercise. The actual, if you, again, if you go into the actual effect size of exercise above placebo, it's probably only about five to 10 points on a zero to 100 scale, but it's not, you know, you can fairly say to patients that, you know, with osteoarthritis, people who just focus on exercise, maybe with some as required pain relief, the majority by that, I mean, more than 50%, um, will do well. They'll find that their pain and function improve. And going back to what I said earlier, a lot of that may well be natural history um, and regression with a bit of contextual effects. But there, there are so many benefits of exercise, that, and, it, and it's such a generally safe thing to do that it seems like a very good starting point. Um, we know that there, there is a decent evidence that there's lots of beneficial effects on joints and cartilage from loading. Again, what I was thinking, saying earlier, that these are active joints. They respond well to activity the whole kind of use it or lose it um, analogy. Same thing with the muscle. If you don't use your muscles, they'll get weak. And if you're not applying some load to your joints, they could, in a way, kind of you could describe the, the joint as becoming weak or less able to tolerate load. Um, it's really important to make people realize that activity, the right kind of activities on joints won't make your arthritis worse. And they are, it is probably going to help in the long term. If someone's willing to kind of get going with some movement, I often don't say exercise because exercise might make people think of something really athletic that is just out of reach. Uh, yeah, it makes me think of PE. Yeah. It turns it into a bit of a chore or something. Exactly. So it's sometimes useful just to say, look, some movement, um, some yeah. graded activity just to get your body moving, get your conditions, re your, your tissues reconditioned. Um, sometimes I feel it can be a bit of a chicken and egg situation though, because patients with osteoarthritis and pain often feel unable to exercise because of their pain. Um, what do you tend to suggest in those situations? Um, it's always re really helps to give some preparatory education. Um, you know, the whole, you know, let people know just because something hurts doesn't mean that you're making it worse, doesn't mean it's, 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 it's harming the joint. Um, you've got to kind of reduce some of that anticipated threat level that you might experience because exercise, it's stress, right? It's, it's positive stress on the joint. Your, people's joints are much more robust than they often give them credit for. And you, you've got to try and help people experience that their joints can respond well. They need to be exposed to it. And they need to have that experience to recognize that exercise can mm. be a pain reliever, not just a pain causer. Um, and I always tell people that, look, you know, especially if you're getting into exercise, it might hurt. It might even be quite bad afterwards. Generally, you can, a pain of up to about three, maybe up to four out of 10 is normal, and that's okay. If you're doing more than that, it's probably bit too much too soon listen to your body but you need to also have adequate rest so um again particularly people with persistent pain understandably they're just in a constant pain state they get really fatigued so i often tell people look you might start with 10 minutes the first time and you might be wiped out for the whole day or the next day so you need to give yourself adequate rest after exercise as well so Imran, we've talked about kind of self-management we've talked about weight loss we've talked about exercise um where does where does our kind of traditional toolkit of, um, you know, anti-inflammatories, x-ray imaging, where does that come into the yeah. equation? Yeah, and so there's, there's, there's absolutely a role for the, the biomedical approach. I'm not saying we should completely abandon it. It's just that by itself, it's, it's usually not going to be enough, unfortunately. So mm -hmm. use all those tools and they will enable people to, to move more. And they'll enable people to address the other areas that they might need to address in their lifestyle, um, diet and weight. Um, but just be sensible. So we know, I mean, you know the, the NICE guidelines have said the same thing. So um, with anti-inflammatories, see if you can start with, with topicals rather than going to oral anti-inflammatories. Um, with, with opioids, generally, we know that opioids in the long term, really, there's a lot of research now that outside of cancer pain, they're really not that effective to use, particularly potent, potent opioids in the long term. Mm. So you've got to be really careful about which patients that you use opioids in and, and try to use them in the short term. Um, and then, of course, there's, there's all sorts of other agents that sometimes out of desperation we might start trying to use, whether it's, you know, things like neuropathic agents or tricyclic antidepressants. Um, and they all 
might have a role. I, particularly when it comes to persistent pain, um, I normally use the rule of thirds. This is not accurate, but just very, very crudely, I tell people, look, when you're in persistent pain, drugs might help reduce symptoms at best by about a third, around a third of the time for around a third of patients. So they're there, use them, always, always be checking how effective are they. If a drug's not working, stop it. Um, always try and use the lowest effective dose and ramp up slowly. Um, and just keep it under regular review because we see so many patients who are just popping pills quite long-term. And it's, if you ask them, it's probably not actually helping them. They just continue taking it. Um, so that's, and, you know, they all have risks. You know, NSAIDs probably put, I think, I'm right, NSAIDs put more people into hospital than road traffic accidents in the UK. Um, there's a lot of political kind of um, awareness of, of opioids. I think the, the opioid issue is variable depending on where you are in the UK. And we, we probably don't have the same level of issue as North America for various systemic reasons. But there's still, there is definitely an issue of lots of patients being overprescribed opioids of any strength where it's probably not doing much for them. Um, and there's also big issues with gabapentinoid prescribing as well, um, where not only is the effect not very um, substantial, but there's also issues with dependency. So drugs have a role. Generally, try and keep them short-term. And any long-term medication, keep it under regular review. Is it really helping the patient? Because um, sometimes they're on so many pills and you'll find that actually um, if they recognize it's not clear these are helping and you can slowly get them off those medications, sometimes people feel better just by um, being off their plethora of drugs that they're taking. And the imaging, imaging is tricky. So I, I could talk endlessly around imaging. Um, <laughs> broadly speaking, there's not masses of evidence that shows that um, imaging in primary care will very regularly change your management. Because a lot of the time, the nasty stuff, you'll often identify it from the history. Um, X-rays, they perhaps have a, a less potential harm because you're not going to have so many cascades from X-rays. Ultrasound and MRI, I think they do have some risks in primary care because they're such sensitive modalities that you're going to pick up so many things that are just incidental. And if you consider kind of misdiagnosis, misreferral to, sur to surgical pathways that someone doesn't need, delay to appropriate care, if you consider all of those things as patient harm, um, a lot of advanced imaging in primary care has a very, very high rate of patient harm. Um, and, and like I was saying earlier, it can really change people's perception if they start being told they've got this, that, that. And if you look at the epidemiology, most of the things that we see on imaging, they're, they're just normal for your age. Yeah. So when do you tend to, when would you tend to request imaging in someone with straightforward, what sounds to you like relatively straightforward um, osteoarthritis? In terms of my management, it's pretty rare that I think I need imaging to know what to do. Because yeah. for most people, you know that you want to try and get them moving, use some analgesia as required, um, address all the, you know, like I said, the, the, the social aspects of their lifestyle. That to me is what primary care should be doing. Mm. If patients need more than that, they need to be in a specialist setting, whether it's a community setting or a hospital setting, because um, it's very hard for primary care to do more than that. So again, lots I think we could uh, potentially pick up on there. Um, Tom, I think the message about imaging and avoiding overdiagnosis will be music to your ears, particularly. Yes, yeah, I, I do go, go on about that a bit, a bit much, don't I? Um, but yeah, I mean, because you see it, you do see it a lot, don't you? I feel like I, I see it all the time. Um, you know, just just you know, follow up appointment to discuss an MRI result which shows something unexpected, probably normal, but not something you've seen before, you know, that, that, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, and and I see what he's saying there about the x-rays, it's less potential for those cascades, which is true, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, no, I, I very much uh, enjoyed that, yes. Endorse that message. I mean, it is interesting. I find imaging one of those things quite interesting in that, um, you know, we started this episode by talking about the kind of limited array of options that we sometimes feel that we have in um, primary care. And imaging is one of those options. And I know certainly I don't necessarily approach every imaging request um, thinking, okay, these are the potential things. This is how it's going to potentially change my management. Sometimes 
I mean, I'm loath to admit this, but sometimes it can feel like a bit of a holding um, measure or it feels like, well, the patient will be expecting this or wants this. So, and I don't really have time to get into a conversation about how this isn't really needed. And so I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) Um, But I think like just everything we've, you know, we've heard and spoken about in this episode from everything from, you know, um, actually there are more options that we have beyond imaging and medications, but also this awareness of uh, how, how these things can all subtly change a patient's pain perceptions and actually the trajectory of their experience of, um, you know, their, their condition. I think that, that has hopefully sunk in with me. Um, but let's see. Just on the imaging there, I think it, it, feels to me that often it, it, if I look back on what my consultations probably look like, um, you know, plan A is you, you go with this approach that Imran's uh, suggesting and then you kind of can quickly pick up on whether that's going well or not. And I think then sometimes, you know, and then the, it's 10 or 15 minutes later and, you know, you kind of have to bring up the imaging, don't you? That, and then they go, yes, that's what I want. And then, you know, that's what, that's what it feels to me like sometimes. There is in New Zealand, um, at least in the Auckland District Health Board, there's pretty active gatekeeping on radiology. So um, anytime a GP requests uh, any imaging study at all, uh, a radiologist has to review their request relative to the clinical information and relative to the clinical guideline pathways. So it, it was actually quite challenging to get an x-ray uh, in the public system. And, and to be clear, I think that's a good thing, right? Like it is really good to have that check where you're being forced to really consider what are you looking for? How is it going to change your management? Um, and I think it makes a lot of sense in light of some of the uh, kind of thinking that Imran shared with us today. Yeah. I think it's important to flag. I mean, um, m- the conversation that we had with Im- Imran and this conversation that we're having now, we are, I think we're talking about patients with what is a fairly obvious kind of osteoarthritis. Obviously, if someone has signs of, you know, an inflammatory process that perhaps does need x-raying or whatever it is, or blood tests, then I, I think those are not the patients we're talking about. These are patients we've already assessed. Um and that's so interesting because I feel like uh, what you said, Jenny, about the kind of gatekeeping to imaging, because I feel like there was certainly more of that when I was training like 10 years ago, but it feels like um, the sort of uh, imaging request pathways have changed. And there's a lot, to me, it feels like there's a lot more that is available now to GPs. There's there's a line though, right? Um, so all of the GP practices in New Zealand are private. So you're also always thinking about patient satisfaction. And if people have private insurance and they're not just covered financially from the public health system, then they can just go around you, basically, uh, in in some cases, or go around that radiology gatekeeping, meaning in some cases, and and get the x-ray anyway. Um, So there there is a balance there. You know, people people who are really clear on wanting x-rays want their x-rays. The tide is, is is that the right expression? Like the tide's against us or we're swimming against the tide, that's the one. Because there's so much um, in the, I guess, media and um, policy level, which is about promoting Mm. better access to imaging. Yeah, mostly to do with cancer, but um, I don't mm-hmm. think there's a, there don't seem to be many voices urging caution over that, mm-hmm. uh, at least in the yeah. kind of mainstream media. I, I really liked what Imran said about uh, joints responding well to exercise and the kind of preemptive guidance around possible soreness or pain after exercise. And I thought your question about that was such a good one, Navjoid. I mean, you know, for people who are experiencing joint pain to think about moving is this level of barrier that, I mean, I, I've been grateful to not have to encounter much, but I can't imagine how hard that would be to kind of go to your doctor and hear that you need to get moving and then just know it's going to make your pain worse. And I think some of that reassurance, uh, would be really helpful. Yeah, that's definitely been, um, again, something I've taken away from that conversation, which has changed my practice in just making sure that, yeah, I'm not just saying do a bit of movement. You know, there is a conversation there about how much, how it might affect pain perception to take rest alongside it. So, yeah, I found that really useful as well, because as you say, 
it had always come up as a bit of a catch-22 for me, but, you know, maybe it isn't so much of that. Um, what did you think about um, the what we spoke about um, on weight loss? Because I found it really interesting to frame that as thinking about the kind of minimally minimally important clinical difference that you can achieve um, through that, which actually is quite a useful framework when thinking about, you know, where to focus your, your energies. And um, yeah, I found it quite compelling, you know, Imran's take that actually maybe thinking about movement might be a bit more sort of useful, but what did you both think? I thought that was really important. Um, and in particular, because framing it as weight loss and talking only about that could lead someone to like work on their diet, for example, and not get moving at all. Um, or to, you know, want a weight loss medication, um, and, or to feel hopeless. And I think that actually framing it as kind of getting your body moving and using those joints and, and, um, that your joints respond really well to that was a much more kind of positive, um, potentially agency boosting approach. Um, but yeah, no, I, I thought that was really good. And I feel bad for a particular consultation, um, where I probably stressed the importance of weight loss, uh, more than what the evidence warrants. I think we've all been there, Jenny. I, I, I definitely feel that <laughs> I've done a lot of that. Um, and also I just feel bad for, pa- you know, for patients who, again, get caught in this catch-22 of like, you know, wanting to be considered for other treatments or surgeries, but, you know, their weight prevents them from doing, you know, it just feels like there's a lot of obstacles for people where their weight is an issue, but, you know, it often can be preventive in terms of accessing some some kinds of healthcare. So that um, anything I think that is more enabling and, as you said, agency boosting. And also I think that point about setting things in in the context of people's own goals as well, I think that's, that's all a really part, important part of that kind of equation. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was loads, there was loads there. And as I said, I I feel like I've, I learned a lot from um, speaking to Imran. Thanks so much to Imran Sajid for that really extensive update. And thank you so much to my co-hosts. See you next time, Tom. Thanks. See you next time. And bye, Jenny. Thanks, Navjoy. Bye for now. We'll be back in a fortnight with another episode. So subscribe on all major podcast apps and that episode will be delivered directly to your phone. If you're enjoying Deep Breath In, please rate and review us. It really helps new listeners find us. Or you can tell your friends and colleagues about the pod too. If you have any topics that you'd like us to find out more about and discuss on the pod, then we'd love to hear. Do drop us an email at practice at bmj.com and we'll endeavour to bring it to you. So until next time, I'm Navjoit Lada. Thanks for listening and bye for now.